Not too long ago, I attended a reunion of my classmates from grade school. We had an absolute ball catching up on our lives and sharing memories from our school days. I noticed that the events we described were as alive at our reunion as they were 40 years previously. Tears and laughter and a genuine fondness for one another permeated that weekend. Our teachers, many of whom were long gone, might as well have been with us in that room. We were reliving the past and making it present all at the same time. In some ways, that's what happens in the Gospel accounts, too. None of the Gospels were written as eyewitness reports, but the events being described some 40 or so years later, as our Gospel of Matthew is, are current, and the characters are still animating the scenes in very real ways. I am reminded of this because the chapters we are studying this week need to be examined with these two layers in mind. So we have the layer that captures the events as they unfolded at that time in history, and then we have a layer that reflects the larger world in which these events were reported over 40 years later. Those two layers get blended together, of course, in the Gospels as we have them now. So let's get started. The previous lesson ended with Matthew 22, where Jesus summarizes the Jewish law that was his foundation. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love of God and love of neighbor are the foundation for all of Israel's words and beliefs and rituals. And yet, Jesus recognizes that among many of his faith's leaders, love was missing from their observance of the law. Love was missing from their leadership and guidance of others. Love was missing from their vision of God's work in the world. The chapters that are the focus of this lesson plunge us into the very heart of Jesus' criticism of the leaders of his own faith tradition. But these chapters also place us in the tension that existed in the Christian community a generation after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Tensions between Christians and Jews, tensions within Christian communities, and even tensions within Christians themselves as they await the coming of Christ. The 23rd chapter of Matthew focuses attention on the leaders of Judaism and by extension, the leaders of the early Christian communities as well. It offers both criticism and direction in words that are harsh and vivid. The chapter begins with Jesus speaking to the crowds and to his disciples. He first speaks in third person. He uses the words they and them, illustrating that the scribes and Pharisees do not practice what they preach. And then in verse 8, Jesus switches to second person saying, as for you, adding a layer of warning also to Christian leaders listening to Jesus. And the issue is hypocrisy. The term hypocrisy is rooted in the Greek term hypocrisis, which refers to playing a part on a stage. The words of Jesus indicate that he sees many of the scribes and Pharisees as actors in some kind of a stage production. They know the right things to say and even overstate their position with outward shows of piety, but they are, after all, merely acting. They not only fail to pr practice what they preach, it's possible that they don't even believe what they're preaching. Seeking status has little to do with the core of the law, which is love. Along those lines, Jesus is reported to have said, Do not be called rabbi. You have but one teacher, and you are all brothers. Call no one on earth your father, 
you have but one Father in heaven. Do not be called master, you have but one master, the Messiah. In general, the use of these terms, rabbi, father, and master, receives very little attention in the New Testament. In fact, outside of the Gospel of Matthew, where only Judas used the term to speak to Jesus, the other disciples frequently called Jesus rabbi. Jesus himself spoke in parables and often identified one or more characters using the term master. And Jesus was even addressed as master himself by those who followed and listened to him. So what's happening here in Matthew's gospel? How can we make sense of these titles being condemned here but nowhere else? This could be evidence that Matthew's own listening audience is experiencing this problem in their leadership a generation later. Had these titles become divisive in Matthew's community, breaking down the mutual respect that was to characterize the church? Simplistically, I've heard people say that we should not be using the term father when addressing our ordained ministers, but that really misses the point. As with all that Matthew refers to in this section, the use of titles becomes problematic when it does not reflect an internal dignity or the proper use of authority. In our own time, if titles such as these are used to elevate ordained persons over others, then the minister who assumes that title must work hard to break down any perceived barriers between those who are ordained and those who are not. And those who are not ordained must ask themselves whether their respect for the ordained comes from their title or from their mission to serve others. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, Jesus paints a picture of the kingdom of God where greatness is measured by totally different standards than the world offers. Chapter 23 continues this contrast with the use of a strong but simple phrase, woe to you. The seven woes of this chapter serve as a harsh counterbalance to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that we recall from chapters 5 through 7. Unlike Jesus, who welcomes those who come as children, the scribes and Pharisees are accused of locking the kingdom of heaven. Unlike Jesus, who calls on his followers to seek first the kingdom of God, the scribes and Pharisees are accused of promoting foolish religious oaths in exchange for offerings. Unlike Jesus, who follows the Hebrew prophets in their loyalty to the covenant qualities of mercy and faithfulness, the scribes and Pharisees are being accused of being preoccupied with trivial things and blind to the more important qualities of community. Unlike Jesus who searches human hearts, the scribes and Pharisees are accused of caring more for empty external rituals. And unlike Jesus who instructs his followers to turn the other cheek and love their enemies, the scribes and Pharisees are accused of persecuting those who are sent from God to preach the good news. After such profound criticism, there is nothing to offer but lament. Jesus expresses great sadness over the behavior of his own people and the consequences of their behavior. How many times I yearn to gather your children together, he says, as a hen gathers her young under her wings, but you were unwilling. This maternal instinct to protect is coupled with what some might say is tough love. They will be left desolate because of their refusal to respond. I'm embarrassed to say that throughout Christian history, much of the critical and judgmental tone of Matthew 23 has been used to justify anti-Semitism. 
That not only does great harm to Judaism and the relationship between Jews and Christians, but it does a great disservice to the biblical text itself. Within the Catholic tradition, we are encouraged to read the text, giving to attention to how it would have been understood at the time it was first heard. We are encouraged to uncover the historical situation being addressed and to acknowledge the influence of the writer and his cultural biases within the text. This gospel was composed after the catastrophic events of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in the year 70. There is ample evidence that the survival of Judaism in this period was largely left to the Pharisees, who in many cases may have been overly stringent in their application of the law and their shows of piety. Naturally, since the first Christians were originally a sect of Judaism, their separation from Judaism over a period of a few decades probably felt like salt on a very deep wound. Jewish and Christian leaders existed in a state of tension that is reflected quite clearly in Matthew 23. It is also fair to say that within the history of any religion, there would be records of strong and critical language used between groups with different strongly held beliefs. And on a personal level, an examination of conscience would reveal that each of us at one time or another may have been simply going through the motions like actors on a stage or we may talk beautifully about our faith, but fail to walk the talk when times are difficult. Difficult times occupy the remainder of our lesson as we look at Matthew chapters 24 and 25, but that does not mean that these are times without grace. These chapters make up the final discourse of Matthew's gospel, a discourse that is described as apocalyptic or eschatological. As with any apocalypse, meaning revelation, its purpose is to give hope to believers who find themselves in stressful and anxious times. And as is the case in other apocalyptic writings, such as the books of Daniel or Revelation, the images and language are largely concerned with divine judgment. This final discourse begins with the disciples taking note of the temple, one of the most majestic buildings of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Jesus grabs the attention of his listeners when he proclaims, there will not be left here a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. But Jesus was not the first to predict such destruction. About 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah sounded much the same notes, announcing the destruction of Solomon's temple as a sign of God's judgment on the chosen people. Having neglected the covenant qualities of faithful love and justice and having ignored true worship, they were being challenged by Micah to trust in God rather than the temple. Another prophet, a hundred years later, warned that the temple and the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed unless God's people repented. Both Jeremiah and Micah gained no popularity with their words, but they were faithful to God. Sadly, the temple of their time was destroyed by the invading armies of Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, the temple was rebuilt in less splendor and then, centuries later, renovated by King Herod the Great. Reconstruction began around the year 19, but was not completed until about 63, only to finally be destroyed by Roman armies in the year 70. So by the time the gospel was written, the temple would have been reduced to rubble. Today, all that remains is the one retaining wall for the foundation of the Temple Mount. 
Even the ruined wall is impressive for its size, giving modern visitors to Jerusalem some sense of the grandeur of the temple at the time of Jesus. The words of warning from Jesus come in response to two questions found in chapter 24, verse 3. The first question is a historical one. When will this happen? Well, if this refers to when the temple will be destroyed, Jesus simply does not answer because the day and the hour are not important. What is more important comes in response to the second question. What sign will there be of your coming? The Greek technical term for this coming of Christ is parousia, literally referring to presence or coming. In the ancient world of the Orient, parousia was usually used to speak about an official visit from a ruler or the appearance of some kind of warrior or savior. According to scholar John Meyer, the early Christians adopted the term and used it to denote Christ's coming to judge the world. This term is used only by Matthew among the Gospel writers, but also appears in the letters of the New Testament. The first thing Jesus does is tell his followers that all the turmoil, all the false messiahs, all the rumors of war and the events of war, even the natural disasters, all of these are labor pains. Pains that, by the way, we are still feeling since we continue to live in the same era of the now and the not yet. A new era in salvation history begins with Jesus. And like many new things, this new era is accompanied by pain. That's why Matthew, like Mark before him, records that Jesus spoke of coming persecutions and apostasy. The suffering and trials of the church come from those outside the church, but also from within the church, as people lose their faith and lose their love for one another. According to Matthew, all of these trials are opportunities to become more deeply rooted in the message of Jesus so that the gospel of the kingdom can be preached throughout the world. And the good news is that only then will the end come. The description of the coming of the Son of Man may sound ominous to us. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, and the stars will fall from the sky. But there is hope in all of this because the Son of Man will come with power and great glory, and His angels will sound the trumpet as a way of gathering God's people. This is not a trumpet blast of judgment, but of gathering and redemption. Three short parables in chapter 24, verses 36 to 44, call God's people to be alert and watchful, the proper stature for those who await Jesus' coming again. The people at the time of the great flood, workers in the field and in the home, even homeowners, all are caught off guard. Only those who are alert and watchful are ready to see the Son of Man. The rest suffer the isolation and anxiety that comes from being left behind. There are also three longer parables, and these deal with the apparent delay in the coming of Christ. In the first parable found in chapter 24, verses 45 to 51, the faithful servant is the one who distributes food at the proper time and is busy doing what his master wants of him. The wicked servant becomes distracted knowing that the master is delayed. He becomes involved in inappropriate behavior and will suffer the consequences. The value of the servants cannot depend on being caught in good works by accident, but on being faithful to the mission, so much so that they are dependable. 
In the second of the longer parables found in chapter 25 at the start, there are 10 virgins who are to carry lamps, escorting the groom as some part of a marriage celebration. Again, there is a delay and the women fall asleep. When the groom does finally arrive, only those who came prepared with oil for their lamps will be able to enter into the celebration or enter into the kingdom. The five who were unprepared return later only to be refused entry. It's not enough then for the followers of Jesus to be enthusiastic about his coming. Calling out, Lord, Lord, will not guarantee entry. Being prepared is essential. The third parable, also in chapter 25, presents a situation of an absentee landowner who entrusts three of his servants with varying amounts of his earthly wealth. They are given talents. A talent may have equaled as much as 6,000 denarii, the equivalent of many years' labor. Two of the servants invest wisely, and when the master returns after a long time, they are praised and given additional responsibility. The third servant, the one given just one talent, seemed to know his master had high expectation and he feared failure. He seems to have had the goal of security rather than responsibility or service. Rather than risking everything or anything, he buries the talent and is later stripped of the little he had been given. As Ronald Witherif points out, fearfulness was not just the servant's disposition. It is one of the great obstacles to authentic faith. In all of these parables, there is an implied separation of the good and the bad, the implied judgment that some are worthy and some are not. The final scene in this week's lesson comes at the end of chapter 25, offering a clear image of the final judgment. The sheep and the goats are separated according to how they have embraced the traditional works of mercy. Over the years, most of us have understood this parable as a universal call to care for the poor and the outcast, to recognize in them the opportunity to meet Christ and to serve Him. In contrast to those leaders who are criticized for outward displays of piety, the Christian is called to inner conversion and outward manifestation of God's love to others. Many scholars, however, also help us to see that the parable in its original setting may have been oriented to a slightly smaller audience. In Matthew's gospel, language about the least ones usually refers to the disciples of Jesus. If this is the case, then the parable about final judgment is addressed to the Gentiles, who have not yet embraced the good news and are having to care for the least of my brothers, those who preach the message of Jesus and suffer all kinds of indignities in the process. In either case, faithfulness is made manifest in active service to others and through them in active service of Jesus himself, who is fully identified with the poor and the outcast. Let's pray this day that we become more and more conscious of deepening our inner life, of making decisions that reflect our awareness of Christ alive in our midst and still on the way in fullness.